Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, it's basketball season. You ever notice when sports team starts winning, suddenly everybody becomes a fan? Go Peacocks! <laughs> what a mascot. Suddenly everyone is a fan of the Peacocks. If you don't know, St. Pete's, a college most people haven't heard of. Still playing in the college basketball tournament has beat some big teams. Sorry to some of my friends out there. They were nobodies. But now all that has changed. Suddenly, fans have come out of the woodwork to cheer for them. What is going on? Well, what's going on is this. Everybody loves a winner. More importantly, everybody wants to be associated with a winner. And that's what was going on in Corinth. The members there in that church, as we take a look here at our text this morning, they, picked, they filled out their brackets. They picked out the biggest, hottest names in the early church. Peter's a one seed. Paul's a three seed. Apollos is a seven. And they formed teams around them because they wanted to boast about being members of a winning team. And although they were boasting about these men, they were really boasting about themselves. We're important because we're with this guy, or we're good because we're with this guy. In our text today, Paul shuts down this foolishness. We're going to take a long, hard look at ourselves and then a long, hard look at God. There's just two sections here, but Paul says, don't boast in yourself. You should boast in the Lord. But is this relevant today? I've got to tell you, uh, you have to help me today. I, I'm not going to have any trouble, I think, declaring God's word to you. But if there's a weakness in what I feel I'm presenting this morning, it might have something to do with how it applies to you. I'm just going to ask you for your help to open your hearts and to soften your spirits and to think, how, how does this play out in my life? It might be a little subtle. Are you and I guilty of boasting? I mean, from a very young age, my mom told me not to. Does this ever happen among God's people? Do we boast? Do you ever boast? What would you boast about? About your accomplishments? About your possessions? Always around Christmas time, there's a, a series of car commercials. I remember one about three siblings driving home to their parents' house for the holidays, each having a different version of a particular kind of car, brand new. The notion was, if you buy one of these before Christmas, you'll have the bragging rights when you get home, right? Sometimes we boast in subtle ways. Or maybe we boast about our academic or our work achievements. Maybe we just casually mention the last grade we got on an exam. Or how well we did on a particular test. Or what new job we just got. Or we're aware of our salaries and raises, our responsibilities, how many people we're responsible for that are under us. And we're thrilled if our score is the highest in the room. If our story outstories the other story. And what about the way we think about or speak about unbelievers? Those who don't know Christ. Is the reason that you're not strung out on drugs today because you are basically smarter than other people? 
Are you inherently wiser or better born than the person who woke up this morning with no idea where they are? Or is the reason you've been married to the same person for 40, 50 years while your coworker is on their fifth spouse because you are just more moral than them? You're naturally smarter. And when it comes right down to it, you are just better than them. Can Christians ever carry themselves like that? People in America now have a saying. They say things like this. Well, it's not boasting if it's true. Okay, <laughs> well, well, even if it is true, it's still boasting. And boasting among the people of God can take a lot of different forms. And social media just takes this to a whole other level, doesn't it? Platforms for self-promotion, self-importance, self-aggrandizement, or as our passage might call it today, boasting. Now let me ask you this. What impact does boasting have on unity? What impact does boasting have on any relationship at any level? Does boasting bring people together? either in the home or in the church or in the community, at your work, does boasting unite? No, there's no question that boasting tears relationships apart. Boasting distances us from other people, maybe about as fast as anything else can. And Paul's going to share with us this morning that there is an antidote to this problem. There is a remedy to the ailment. It's a greater understanding of the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. From the previous section, in verse 25 especially, where we learned last week from Pastor Brian that God's foolishness is superior to any wisdom the world could offer, just as his weakness far exceeds the strength of men, Paul is now going to bring two stories, two, two sections this week and next week to illustrate that point, to help us understand. He gave us the what. He wants to give us the now what and the so what. What difference does it make? And to illustrate that point, Paul this morning reminds us that God chose mostly low-status people, not the elite. Now, I have a main point for you this morning. It's this. The cross has turned the world's value system upside down. The cross has turned the world's value system upside down, and we should get along with the program. But we struggle, and that's all right. And Paul brings this out to us right away as we move into the text here, and we look at, like I said, we're going to take one really hard look at us, our calling, our status when God reached out to us in verses 26 to 29. And then in verses 30 and 31, we're going to take a really good hard look at what God has done in us and what makes the difference. So point number one, verses 26 to 29, let's take a good look at our human calling. At our human calling. Paul invites the Corinthians to remember their condition when God first drew them to himself, when God first called them. From a human point of view, they had been completely foolish to believe in a crucified Christ 
as a way of salvation. Pastor Brian shared this with us last week. I mean, just, did you win? You know you were crucified publicly. What a foolish thing to believe in. Look at verse 26. This is his first illustration. Paul says to them, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So Paul points out their human status in verse 26 to offer living proof to illustrate verse 25. At the time that God sovereignly called the Corinthian believers into the body of Christ at Corinth, most of them, how would you like this description for you, not wise, not influential, and not high-born, not with a pedigree by human standards. Now, not many, which is different than not any, does allow that some of the Corinthians had a high status, but the Corinthians as a whole needed to remember something about their status in the world when God called them. Paul shows affection for them. He calls them brothers and then launches into some very, very direct teaching. When they were called, they had no basis from which to assert superiority over one another. They had no basis to boast at all. No wisdom, no status, no power. But when God called them, he enabled them to believe the gospel, the simple truth of the crucified Christ. But now it seems, unfortunately, that many of the Corinthians have forgotten this experience, which would be why Paul would be reminding them of it. And we're now appealing to human wisdom to exalt themselves. And it's producing this division. Now Paul just builds on this in the next couple of verses and he moves from looking at them alone to reminding them of how God then interacted with them. In contrast to verse 26, and even as further proof of verse 25, God wisely chose the exact, listen to this, the exact opposite kind of people from those whom worldly wise people would expect. The opposite. He chose the uneducated, the non-influential, and the disdained. Look at verse 27 and verse 28. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Well, just at a quick glance, we see a couple of things here in the text. We see a threefold choosing by God. Do you see that? God chose, God chose, God chose. The first two choosings produce shame. Do you see that? To shame. God chose what's foolish to shame. God chose what's weak to shame. The third one, when God chose, this is a little harder in our English language, the things that are not, those would be the lowest things in the world, the things that have no value, to bring to nothing the things that are, the things that people have, think have value. God chose them in order to shame, confound, and invalidate the elite, the wise, the influential, and the highborn. In fact, this is how God has chosen his people throughout history. These three times Paul says God chose illustrates for us how God sovereignly chooses his people in a way that he enables them to believe and ensures that they do. In fact, this is not new. 
This is very similar to the language that God used in the book of Deuteronomy when he called Israel to be his chosen people. Listen to this. Imagine God is calling you to be his people. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to his fathers, to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Oh, so it wasn't about us, it was about God. Listen to Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6. One other passage here in this great formalization of God's relationship with the kingdom of Israel. And imagine you are an Israelite hearing these words about you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, the people in the land, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word, the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess it because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. The Corinthian experience back in 1 Corinthians of the gospel makes God's outlook on the world and its wisdom very, very clear. God chooses. God chose as his people those whom the world did not respect. Most of the Corinthian believers, in fact, represented the foolish, the weak, the lowly, and the things that count for nothing in the eyes of the world. And Paul actually describes the Corinthians as things. Do you see that? At the very end, the things. He describes them as things to indicate how little the world thinks of them. They are the things which are not. Are you wondering why God would do this? Yes, there was a divine purpose in all of this. God planned to shame those whom the world considered wise and strong. Although the Corinthians probably appeared foolish and weak to the unbelieving world when they trusted Christ, they were not foolish for believing the gospel. Instead, the world was shown to be foolish and weak. Paul didn't use these unflattering descriptions of the Corinthians to belittle them, but to remind them that they had no basis for boasting. In fact, this is where I'm not sure how to nicely apply this to you this morning. Should I have gotten my church directory out? Created three columns, not wise, not not influential, and started graphing? Just kidding. Or here in real time, let's see. Not wise, no, no, probably not. In fact, Paul names no one here and describes it as as an amalgam. But what I do know is this. When the Corinthians first experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives, they did not feel superior to one another, and they were not divided. 
From God's perspective, nothing has changed between that time and now. They still had no reason to boast, to divide, to quarrel. Paul reminds them of this, that they would eliminate these things that caused them to treat one another so poorly. And Paul flows right into this final concluding thought of my first point in verse 29 and shares God's purpose for us in these truths. And Paul offers the purpose of the choosing that God has done, described in verses 27 and 28, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. If God, I suppose, had primarily chosen those who are wise, who were influential, who were elitist, born with a pedigree, they might proudly presume that God had chosen them because of their elite status. And this is why God chose mostly low-status people. They can't boast in themselves. We'll come back to this in a minute when we get to verse 31, because we're told not to boast in ourselves. This is something I think most of us learn from our parents. It's kind of put-off-ish, isn't it? I mean, it's cute at 2, and you can deal with it at 12, but at 19, it ought to stop, right? But we'll come back to that when we get to verse 31 and contrast. It means not to boast in ourselves versus are we boasting in the Lord? Because we have two commands here. But let's consider what this means just for a minute. Now, if you wanted a simple threefold definition of what the world thinks is a great man, great person, a great woman, number one, they're very intelligent. Number two, they probably have tremendous influence through money or power, whether it's political or sports or education or they're influencers or whatever it is. And thirdly, they've got a high rank. It's general so-and-so, it's senator so-and-so, president so-and-so, vice president so-and-so, CEO so-and-so, the head of this, the head of that. The, the world bases its greatness on knowledge, education, influence, power, money, and rank. Now, would you like to meet the greatest man who ever lived? According to God? I'd like to meet an interesting guy. You might remember him from our study of Jesus in the Gospel of John. His name is John the Baptizer. Do you know he had no education? Not formally. Do you know he had no particular power or rank? Are you aware he was an unbelievably strange man? (laughs) He wore kind of a modified Tarzan suit made out of camel's hair. And he ate grasshoppers and wild honey and lived out in the middle of nowhere. Well, you say, maybe he was well-born. He came from a high-ranking family, right? Elizabeth and Zechariah? They're nobodies. I thought he was a priest. Sure, he was a priest, but there were thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of priests. They had no rank. And while John the Baptist had no earthly status, in Matthew chapter 11, it is recorded for us that Jesus said, among all the men that are born in the world, there has not risen a man greater than John the Baptist. The greatest man who ever lived, and he didn't fit any of the world's standards. But he fit God's standard. Because he was a wise man. He knew God. What a paradox. Think about verse 27. God has chosen not the wise, but the 
foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God's not chosen the mighty, but the weak things in the world to confound the things that are mighty and the low things. He's chosen the unranked, the low-born things of the world, the things that are despised. This is what God has chosen. Things that aren't even considered. They are things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Do you understand the contrast here? In verses 27 and 28, Paul contrasts what God has chosen while he mentions what he hasn't chosen. And what I mean to say there is that God has not chosen the educated but foolish. He's not chosen the powerful but the weak. He has not chosen the high-born but the low-born. He's chosen things in the eyes of the world that are nothing, things that think they're something that they would be put down. Human philosophy doesn't mean anything. And Paul says we need to get that kind of thinking out of our heads and out of our churches, will you? You don't need it. John the Baptist, when confronted with the fact that many of his disciples were leaving and going to follow Jesus, said it best, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. He must increase. I must decrease. Say it with me. He must increase. I must decrease. Amen. This is not boasting in ourselves. And not not just that, but not superimposing and continuing to live in the value system of the world. Giving credit and credibility to those things that God says are nothing. Becoming slaves to that type of worldview. Well, we've taken a good long look at ourselves. Let's take a good look at the Lord. Boasting in the Lord is on one hand quite the opposite of boasting in ourselves. Instead of drawing attention to ourselves, we are to draw attention to Christ. This boasting is a call for people to admire him as much as we admire him. Do you admire him? Can I give you one thing here in the transition to think about? It is one thing not to boast in yourself, but to boast in the Lord. I know what people boast in. I've never had a hole in one. Oh, I'd probably boast. Because I put a little value on that. People boast in what they put value in. If you put no value on the Lord, you cannot boast. This is the heart check. Do you have it in you to boast in the Lord? Paul wants to give you that fuel this morning, and that's where we're going. So our second thought here from verses 30 and 31 is to see our new status in Christ. Oh, we may have been called out of nothingness, but we've been given a new status in Christ. Take a look at the divine blessings we receive in verse 30. As a result of this choosing, we believers, we who love Jesus, are united with him because of God, not because of ourselves. For believers, a crucified Messiah that the world would look at and say, this is meaningless, this is ridiculous, a a dead Messiah. Paul describes as wisdom from God. And because of him, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Instead of boasting in our own wisdom, our own influence, our own pedigree, we boast in Jesus, 
the true wisdom. And he goes on in the same verse to give some um, examples of what this wisdom means. And he says that Jesus is our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Do you see it there? And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These three realities highlight aspects of how believers greatly benefit from a crucified Messiah. Paul gives a legal example, then a religious example, and finally an example from slavery. All three of these examples reconnect the significance of Jesus with the story of God's redemption of Israel, his calling them to be his holy people, and how that plays out in our lives as well. Righteousness. If you're not supposed to boast in yourself, I get that. But I hope right here, as Paul speaks through his word to you, the blessings of God in your life in Christ, that boasting in God would well up in you. Righteousness, God's gift of a righteous status to sinful people. The imagery of a legal proceeding and a law court. The gift is judicial. The act of God whereby he legally declares sinful people to be righteous simply because they are in Jesus. God actually imputes and credits the righteousness of Jesus to your spiritual bank account, so to speak. You had no standing, and now you have, wouldn't you like to have this perfect credit before God? A perfect credit score, and it's based on nothing you do. And no mistakes you've made in the past affect it. Sanctification. We know sanctification has a three-part meaning, past, present, and future. But right here, Paul's referring to what we call the positional or definitive sanctification. This is what God thinks of you when he brings you into Christ all at one time. We are set apart for him the moment he gives us spiritual life. It's the way God sees us. We are his holy chosen people. This is what Paul means when he uses the word to describe the Corinthians at this time. Because they are a hot mess. But you remember in chapter 1, earlier he has called them God's sanctified. God sanctified them through the work of Jesus on the cross. All genuine members of God's church are already holy in this sense. God calls you holy. And I don't know what you've done this week, but I know this, you're not. And God calls you holy. God calls you legal. God calls you righteous. And then he says redemption. This is the concept from the world of commerce and slavery. Redemption in both the Greek context as well as the Jewish context refers to freedom from slavery due to someone paying the price of ransom for you. In our case, we were enslaved to sin. And Jesus frees us from that slavery by paying the price of his sacrificial death on our behalf. What wonderful terms and thoughts Paul rolls out for us here. Hear the verse again. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. This is the value system. This is the way we will see the world. Justification, sanctification, and redemption. Are you blessed? That's better than a hole in one. 
This is worthy of our hearts boasting. And he, Paul rolls right into that and describes in verse 31 his purpose for us in these truths. God has placed believers into Jesus so that we would boast in the Lord, Jesus, the Messiah, and not in anything or anyone else, verse 31, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The purpose of Christ's exclusive role as the wisdom of God, bringing salvation, is that all boasting, all boasting would be done to the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to think about this. Boasting in the Lord is actually kind of hard for us to do. It requires us to be in a state of humility in ourselves. But pride in Christ This is the tension that is unnatural to us. It's unnatural to me. Listen to that again. Boasting in the Lord is actually quite hard for us to do. It requires us to be in a state of humility in ourselves, but pride in Christ. A tension unnatural to us. I read that in one of the commentaries I read this week, and I I thought about that so deeply because every definition from Merriam-Webster and whatever anything about boasting, surprisingly to me, did not simply... Describe it as the words that come from a person's mouth, but every definition connected it to pride. Every definition connected the act of boasting with the heart of pride. To drive the point home, and as if to say this is nothing new, Paul quotes Jeremiah. Chapter 9. It says, as it is written, do you see that there? As it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verses 23 and 24, where the prophet Jeremiah warns Israel not to boast in their own wisdom or ability. They were to put their confidence in the Lord to deliver them from trouble. They were faith, they were in idolatry and they were facing foreign nations. And listen to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It's no surprise Paul quoted this. In fact, it's the basis for his entire, for, it is the basis for my entire passage. Thus says the Lord, do not let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Don't let the mighty man boast in his might. Don't let the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is not new. This is a message that God has been saying for some time. Paul recalls this verse to apply this Old Testament principle to his readers. Those who understand rightly will not be so foolish as to boast in themselves and any other human being. They would take confidence only in the Lord. Well, so what? The text is very straightforward. It's easy to declare. Quantifying pride as a preacher is a... I'm, I'm so glad the Holy Spirit is here this morning. <laughs> and He can work His Word in your life better than I could. I'll throw some thoughts at you. I want simply to say by way of application that I believe that the nuance and application of this text is unique to every one of you. And I could not dare to approach the throne of your hearts and the little kingdoms that you set up 
and the boasting that you do and the, and the self-importance that you feel just like me. It is the work of the Lord to put that down. But here are a few thoughts. Paul hoped that when the Corinthians ceased to boast in themselves, they'd be reconciled to each other because their differences and divisions would pale because of their common passion in Christ. I coach basketball in a very narrow, very narrow setting. Homeschool Christian basketball. Okay? Can you imagine that if we were not the people over there wearing the red shirts and the people over here wearing the blue shirts, if we were not in that room cheering for different teams and I sat at coffee with any one of those men or women, could you imagine that we have everything in common? Like we do life the same way, do you understand? But for that moment, could I get fired up? Get your kid off my kid. You're, you know, and, and here you go. But Paul hoped that when we boasted in Christ, that those pettinesses would just disappear and that we would be united in the thing that captures our hearts more than anything else, the Lord Jesus, our justification, our sanctification, our redemption. Our boasting in Christ together unifies our church. Do you understand that? Jesus said the two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think it's implied that we would use our bodies and our time and our talents and our gifts and our money and our things to accomplish those two great gifts, right? Those two great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the stuff around me and all of, my, all of mine is to be poured into that. And that's what it means to boast in the Lord. What does it mean to boast in yourself? It means to turn those things all the way around. Instead of worshiping God, you worship self. And instead of loving people, you love things. And then you use people to get what you want. And you turn those commandments around. And that's not boasting in the Lord. Why do we want to hang on to these kinds of things? The Colts made a trade this week. Got a new quarterback. Some of you might think it's a good trade. Some of you might think it's a bad trade. Let me offer you the spiritual trade. It is the subtle thing of pride. I think it's one of the most important things that we could think about. God wants to make a trade. He wants to give you the fruit of the Spirit. He wants to give you love, joy, peace, patience, Goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. You want those things? Sound like a good trade to you? You know what God wants? He wants the credit. God wants the glory. And at a quiet moment, it makes absolutely no sense for me not to make that trade. Absolutely, Lord, take all the credit and glory you want. Please give me love, joy, peace, peace. <laughs> but in the moment, oh, I hang on to credit. I hang on to to praise. I, I want those things, and I make a bad trade. Do you understand that? That's good for us to think about these things, that we'd be willing to let go of the glory and the boast, and we'd be so united in boasting in the Lord. I read an article this week, help with seven thoughts that are quick. Boast in the cross. How do we, how do we boast in the Lord? Glorify God online and offline. 
Be humble. Boast in your weaknesses. Do you do that? You ever boast in your weakness? I pray to God in my weakness. I say, God, I can't do that. I can't change a heart. God, I can't fix. I, 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 I'm going out of my way more and more to tell God what I can't do. Hope you do that too. It's humble. Build others. Let others build you. I invite the praise team back to the platform. Brian went 55 minutes last week. I heard. I was out of town, so I'm not to blame for that. Um, but I'll try to give you five back here. I'll probably hear about that tomorrow. It's okay. It's a great story in Acts chapter 4 that I'm going to close with. It's just a simple story. It's about some friends of ours, Peter and John. In fact, Peter, one of the guys who is in this whole division thing. I follow Peter. As Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. The wise, the influential. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead crucified Messiah. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power? By what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, boasting, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated, common men... They were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. And when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What will we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let him go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen.